and welcome to the TCT podcast. I am Laura Griffiths, Deputy Group Editor. In this week's episode, I chat to best-selling author and Dartmouth Tuck School of Business professor Richard Devaney following the release of his new book, The Pan-Industrial Revolution. Devaney talks to TCT about the industrialization of additive manufacturing, the impact on the world economy, and how a handful of so-called pan-industrial titans will capture the market. So, what exactly do you mean by pan-industrial? The pan-industrial revolution represents a super-convergence of industries. Mm-hmm. Additive manufacturing and digital manufacturing will make companies uh, much more flexible than they are today. Mm-hmm. So, what do you call a company who uh, uh, makes bicycle parts mm-hmm. one, one day and then automobile parts the next and then uh, parts for uh, uh, or even uh, uh, toys uh, or uh, electrical boxes the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, it's hard to say what industry they're in. Mm-hmm. And it, it, so I, industry boundaries are going to disappear because of this technology mm-hmm. uh, and because of consumer demand. And that's the pan-industrial revolution. And the word revolution, we, we hear this quite a lot with digital technologies, additive manufacturing. We often call it the, the fourth industrial revolution. So do you think that is revolution the right word? Is it really going to be that transformative in your eyes? Uh, yes. I, uh, uh, from what I can tell and what I see is it's going to change societies and geopolitics uh, on a global level. Uh, it will... Uh, present several challenges to democracy and capitalism. Uh, so I, I think the change is going to be as big as the change that took place uh, in the last industrial revolution that took, uh, uh, during the early 1900s, um, where all kinds of new things happened, like urbanization and roads and printing will not only change uh, manufacturing itself but also the wider economy so are, are there places where you think we will see the the biggest impact from this technology uh, yes let me uh, let me give you some examples mm-hmm. um, it, it's not quite certain yet whether additive manufacturing is going to reduce the number of workers who have jobs mm-hmm. um, it certainly will reduce blue collar uh, jobs and some high-end craftsman jobs uh, inside the factory, but it will produce some level of um, uh, uh, software engineers and and other high-end jobs to to go along with it. I don't know whether it's going to be enough to make up for the, those job losses. Um, uh, uh, plus, there may be. Opportunities for uh, and you know for all, all kinds of new uh, business needs to be served, uh, and no one really knows how big that's going to be because it's unimaginable at this point. Um, the uh, but let's assume that uh, there's going to be some technological uh, substitution of uh, of uh, uh, machines for humans. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, here's how I think it's going to play out. Uh, first, in a country like the U.S., we 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 hardly make anything anymore, mm-hmm. and maybe three percent of our population, uh, excuse me, of our workforce, is uh, is engaged in actually making things. Mm-hmm. A lot higher percentage work for manufacturing firms, uh, but they're doing marketing and distribution and design and administration and accounting and blah, 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 blah. So uh, I don't think additive manufacturing is going to affect the U.S. Uh, that that much. Uh, on the other hand, 
middle-cost and mid-cost labor, especially craftsmen um, and, uh, you know, uh, 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 people with uh, uh, lower skills, uh, they're going to be very uh, uh, disturbed by this because they're going to lose a lot of employment. So take a country like China. Um, the big question is, can they create enough new jobs to replace the ones that will be uh, eliminated by uh, by this uh, new technology? And if they can't, that will destabilize uh, China um, and weaken its economy. Um, in addition, the U.S. will... Uh, and Europe, for that matter, will be making more of their own so uh, products. So we won't um, uh, be, you know, basically shipping our money to to, to Asia, mm-hmm. um, and that money will stay at home, which will strengthen our economies as it gets reinvested, um, because we're going to produce more at home. The balance of the geopolitical power. Mm-hmm is potentially at stake here. Mm-hmm. Um, now, at the same time, uh, a third world or newly industrializing countries mm-hmm. are going to have a problem because usually the first step up from uh, providing agricultural and mineral products is to start low-end manufacturing with, um, uh, with a lot of assembly. Mm-hmm. And those kinds of jobs are going to disappear. The better and better that additive becomes, uh, the less assembly there will be because of combined parts. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of poor nations are going to find themselves being pushed back towards the mineral and agricultural stage, and they will not uh, have the chance to go through the development cycles that we saw in countries uh, in, in like Taiwan and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Korea and, and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's something then the companies and, and I guess other sort of um, like regions need to kind of wake up to this pan-industrial revolution and kind of be very aware of it to see how they might have to um, adapt and, and, and change the way they currently do things? Uh, oh, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just the geopolitical environment that's going to change. Mm-hmm. Methods of competition are going to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, methods of manufacturing are going to change. Mm-hmm. So um, I think there'll be a race towards parts consolidation and lightweighting of parts so that only 3D printing is capable of making uh, the uh, uh, products of the future. And, uh, and assembly will be reduced as the number of parts uh, becomes larger, or excuse me, becomes smaller. Um, and, and consequently, uh, we're going to have to develop a whole new mindset mm-hmm. at the Henry Ford manufacturing. Yeah. So Henry Ford said, simplify the parts and uh, 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 and basically turn humans into automatons uh, plus uh, use efficient assembly lines and long supply chains. Mm-hmm. So go wherever you can find lower cost. The future says the opposite. Complex parts, reduce assembly, um, manufacture close to the customer, uh, and mainly you'll be buying raw materials. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, uh, that's a real different mindset. And, from what I can tell, most engineers do not get that. Well, that's quite interesting because I, I was wondering what your your opinion was on um, this adoption of additive technologies. Is it mainly um, kind of an upwards push from engineers or is it mainly these um, C-level execs that are kind of um, driving the adoption? Where, where is this is this push coming from? I think the vast majority of engineers are hopelessly stuck in the past. And quite frankly they're going to become obsolete. That's the way Motorola's engineers for radio frequency uh, technology, uh, analog-based, became an anchor that prevented
prevented uh, Motorola from adopting digital phones. Uh, and I'm, I'm finding that most engineers are very myopic. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, uh, uh, for example, they do a direct parts analysis or a direct cost analysis of a swap out of parts. And then they come to the conclusion, geez, we can't do this. Um, and oftentimes, they set conditions on their analysis to make the analysis easier. So uh, hard to measure items or costs are often just dropped out. So inventory carrying costs, they can't figure out how that's going to change. So we ignore it. Um, Parts consolidation and reduced assembly, we really can't figure out how that is uh, going to save money. And so we don't include it in the analysis. And at the end of the day, they usually assume today's technology, but not the technology that will be available in two to three years, So uh, and at the rapid rate of change, uh, that's going on, uh, um, they kind of miss the boat. By the time they realize that the direct costs are, um, are considerably reduced, uh, they, uh, it's too late because somebody else has jumped on board. Mm -hmm. So my belief is that uh, it ha this is going to have to be a top-down push effort and the and there'll have to be a significant change in who is running the engineering and manufacturing functions to get them used to this uh, new idea. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, uh, in in the long run, um, I think it's going to be a top. Uh, uh, excuse me, in the intermediate run, I think it's going to be a top down effort. Um, and in the long run, it'll become bottom up as more and more people uh, come into the workforce with the additive manufacturing knowledge that they need to compete. And, and uh, they won't be protecting their jobs uh, that, uh, you know, are becoming obsolete. And there'll be a push from the bottom up um, in the longer run as we get more skilled engineers um, and as we get better machines mm -hmm. and as the competition starts to adopt it and everybody looks around and says, oh, okay, well, I'm not going to be the first to do this. Mm -hmm. um, so so I think the answer to your question is it's going to be both but at different time periods. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned then, you know, that this kind of fear of, of um, jobs not being there in the future. And there, there is this this concern about about automation. You know, you speak of an example um, in the book about um, a cell phone facility um, and with automation, how they've gone from around 600 staff three years ago to just 60 now. And what do you say to kind of counteract that fear? And, and is there a reason for engineers to be optimistic about adopting these technologies? Uh, well, there's certainly lots of benefits to this. Um, one is the balance of trade uh, and the geopolitical shift is back towards the West uh, on, a, on, a, on a macro level. Um, on a more uh, micro level, um, there'll, uh, there'll be fewer jobs, but they're going to be much higher paying, um, which will you know, require a more educated workforce, um, and uh, and uh, most importantly, if you're sitting in a, a country that has largely made a switch over to the service industry, mm -hmm. uh, then you're pretty much going to be safe. And, and of course, there's going to be, um, um, uh, you know, a number of people who simply just can't make the change, and they're going to end up on the on the dole. So we're going to end up with a world of abundance without prosperity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we can make anything you want. We can make it pretty cheap, but people won't have jobs to be able to buy it. Right. So this is going to start demanding some changes, which um, maybe. Uh, causing us to influence capitalism and democracy. Mm -hmm. um, so, 
capitalist side, um, um, <clears throat> we're, uh, there may be a lot more wealth transfers. Uh, in other words, uh, the companies are taxed and the money is then distributed to the unemployed. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you go one step further in which the government becomes the owner of the means of production and it distributes the wealth uh, uh, to, to everybody um, who, uh, who needs it. Mm-hmm. And here we are now working our way further and further into capital, uh, away from capitalism into principles of socialism. Mm-hmm. Um, so Karl Marx may be right that uh, capitalism will bury itself because we've become so efficient and so automated. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually don't think that's going to happen, even though that's the great fear. I do believe that there will be uh, lots of new opportunities that will take place, mm-hmm. even for uneducated workers. So, so let me give you an example. In 2015, I wrote an article for HBR in which I uh, suggested that the uh, one of the things that might happen is that 3D printers could be used to make artificial coral reefs, mm-hmm. and that companies like food companies would create fish fish hatcheries uh, that they could uh, plunk down into the ocean in uh, uh, in uh, colder waters uh, because a lot of the coral reefs are suffering from uh, global climate uh, climate change and the water they're heating up and it's gradually killing off the reef. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> And the response to me was, uh, that, you know, I got a lot of uh, letters saying that I was insane and how stupid I was and could, it, 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 you know, what an idiot idea. Well, I just read within the last six months a story about Jacques Cousteau's um, uh, grandson who is now experimenting with uh, the building of artificial coral reefs using 3D printing. Um, and I also read about the government of Australia uh, working on 3D printing to try to repair uh, the Great Barrier Reef, yeah, which yeah. is suffering as well. Um, now, let's just uh, think about what that means. Uh, first of all, we can expand the capacity of food production uh, by building more reefs um, and, uh, and at a much faster rate than the than the centuries that it takes Mother Nature to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, um, those uh, 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 reefs can be proprietary. And as a consequence, a food company uh, might station uh, out there uh, a set or a fleet of ships that uh, harvest the fish, um, process them, and uh, and freeze them and package them, mm-hmm. uh, all of which would be new jobs for people that would not be, uh, you know, uh, uh, educated as highly as engineers would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we could create this whole new opportunity for, for workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, uh, uh, you'd expect fish now as it becomes less expensive to become more of a dietary item. And so all sorts of new recipes for fish will be invented. New restaurants will carry them. Uh, and uh, frozen food dinners will have many, much more variety to them now, uh, and, and so forth. So, so here we end up with a very positive result mm-hmm. in which um, we solve multiple problems, at least partially, um, at the same time. Uh, we deal with uh, uh, mitigating the effect of global um, uh, climate change. Um, we deal with the food shortage issue um, and the declining uh, ocean uh, production uh, around coral reefs. Mm-hmm. Um, we create jobs and we feed a whole lot of people with a whole lot of better recipes 
uh, for less. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, all the bowling pins that the that the fall uh, fall together or fall down one at a time, and uh, and bumping into the next one and the next one, and so who knows where that will lead? Yeah. Um, but you can see that that is a very positive result, mm -hmm. and presuppose that there's uh, you know other industries um, or other pan industrial markets that will be. Um, uh, that will be uh, uh, created, uh, and you realize that maybe a lot of jobs can uh, actually be replenished. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, you know, I, I, it'll take a while to get this thing running, you know, five years before it'll be, you know, uh, before companies will start to, to play with it. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, and 10 years before it becomes a fully grown kind of uh, uh, method within the fish uh, and the frozen food industries, mm. um, but uh, but it's already on the horizon, uh, and we can see um, governments uh, and uh, famous individuals um, uh, backing you know uh, backing up the credibility of this. Mm. Uh, so I, I think if they saw no opportunity to make this work mm -hmm. um, uh, these folks wouldn't be um, wouldn't be testing it out mm -hmm. in the book you, you recognize that um, that smaller companies and organizations are often the ones that are um, adopting the technologies and really pioneering additive manufacturing I think some people will be quite surprised to hear that as we tend to think of there being this um, adoption barrier to those small medium businesses but but why do you think it is smaller businesses that have been adopting this technology more are they just more agile is it are they more open to it what, what do you think is the key thing there yeah, younger people trained in new ways of thinking, and there's no cement from all the engineering folks telling you um, the their bad uh, prognosis for it. Right. So the smaller firms are adopting it. Mm -hmm. The question is whether they'll keep control over additive manufacturing or whether it'll migrate to the larger companies. Mm -hmm. And I believe there's a natural economic and strategic logic that means that most of these makers will disappear. Okay. Um, large companies um, will <clears throat> um, find that if they invest a lot, they can make machines that are much more expensive, uh, but produce much more quickly and have uh, and have lots better, you know, software and feedback control and get better yields. And the small firms aren't going to be able to afford these machines. Mm -hmm. They won't simply have the volume. Right. Um, and so um, uh, there's a second phenomenon uh, that I think will start to drive this. Um, uh, and that is what I call economies of scope. Mm -hmm. uh, within the limits of the technology that you own um, for additive manufacturing, Companies will diversify more and more and more, mm -hmm. um, and as a as a consequence of that, we're going to get these big pan industrial um, titans that will start to capture the markets because <clears throat> they'll always have their factories filled. They'll have um, uh, common purchasing, um, and they'll have control uh, over their intellectual property and secrecy. Uh, which they probably wouldn't be able to keep if they used a large number of smaller people and smaller producers in a, in a network. Mm. Uh, you know, there wouldn't be as much bootlegging um, uh, taking place and, and, and so forth. So, so I, I, I believe that the, the makers are cooked. Um, and, uh, and especially because as it turns out, when you look at the makers, um, you know they're buying inexpensive machines with limited capabilities, and this idea of unleashing the you know millions of creative people into the manufacturing world or um, uh, and creating a variety of products, 
I don't think is really playing out. Mm. Most people don't have imagination. Um, now, you can download things from, from files. Cumulative creativity can happen, but you know, a, a lot of the products that are made on these simple machines, they're like plastic forks. Mm. You know, how much can you make them different? <laughs> um, uh, I suppose you could pretend they are fine silver and have different kinds of uh, uh, designs on them, but it, 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 at some point it looks stupid. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so, um, so I think that their range will be limited, and that the large companies will uh, have the advantage because of economies of scale and scope. And the final advantage that they'll have is their digital platforms, which can give them instantaneous feedback if they set them up right about what needs to be produced, and they can shift production between different products or uh, different colors or different uh, uh, product features mm -hmm. uh, uh, much more quickly uh, than a small uh, player uh, does. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> Um, in addition, I think, in a sense, there's no universal additive manufacturing machine available that makes everything. Um, you, you're going to have to have a portfolio of additive manufacturing machines for, for different materials and, um, uh, you know, different product properties. And uh, so, again, the large companies will... Uh, will have the advantage there um, in terms of providing, you know, the most flexibility to get things done mm -hmm. um, compared to the, the little small guys who are going to be stuck usually with one or two printers and uh, making plastic jewelry for kids. <laughs> But even with the guys you mentioned at the start, Jable, I mean, they're having so a, a lot of a success with adopting um, these desktop machines onto their production lines to make things like jigs and fixtures. So there, there is a place for those sort of smaller plasticky machines, but I guess being used for the right application in the hands of the right people. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I think the big companies are going to have advantage. When, when I talk to people at Jable, um, the... Uh, they're so enlightened about the future, mm -hmm. and so much marching towards it. Towards it, um, between their software platforms um, like In Control uh, and their rapid um, acquisition of, uh, of printers and testing and adopting, and, and they are the standard of the future. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, uh, and they're going whole hog after this. So um, <clears throat> uh, and and the people are all like, uh, okay, well we're technology agnostic, and if this way works better, then we're going to adopt this way. Mm -hmm. And if it makes sense to do it conventionally, we'll adopt it that way. But we're going to continue to find a way to reduce conven the conventional operations because, um, you know, you talk about a, a company that makes uh, lots of products, um, you know, I mean, they make it in the, uh, 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 you know, in the tens of thousands of products um, uh, and making millions of them. Uh, and they're developing a service for companies um, who lack the talent for um, additive, you know, designed to additive manufacturing. Um, uh, they're, they're building up a, a group of people who can provide that kind of that kind of service. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, um, uh, I, again, uh, I don't think that the best talent will go to the little companies. Okay. Um, so the makers makers are again uh, uh, will be lagging. Mm -hmm. Just as you mentioned, makers then, of course, a 3D printing has had this cycle of going through this um, this big element of hype when it was all about makers and, you know, you're going to make things in your home. And then people became disillusioned when we realized that that wasn't going to happen. And now the conversation is, is of course, shifting onto these industrial applications and, and these big companies adopting additive manufacturing. What, what, what do you think happened in that time for this, for this shift to materialize? In the last three years, um, the amount of innovation has skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so, for 
Um, for example, whole new methods of quality control. That's uh, where they scan layer by layer to make sure that there's no defects. Mm. Um, uh, or they x-ray at the, at the end of the process to see if everything conforms the way they expect it. Um, uh, secondly, uh, uh, besides quality control, there are all kinds of new uh, methods to help in the design of products like generative design and topological optimization and, uh, and, and so forth so that um, more people are able to use them. Uh, use the use the printers. Mm-hmm. Third, the big opening, um, uh, I think, the crack in the in 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 the wall um, was created by Hewlett Packard's entry mm-hmm. uh, into the marketplace. Um, uh, MJF isn't perfect yet, but it's getting better and better all the time. So you know. Um, Windows 1.0 practically didn't function, and now look at what Windows can do. And basically, um, Hewlett-Packard is marching its way forward um, with improvements and feedback from customers um, and extensive um, kinds of testing of the products that didn't exist a while ago. And then third, the opening uh, of the middle to lower end metal market mm. um, is a, a big shift. Um, up to two or three years ago, uh, uh, GE was really the industry leader, but they made very small volumes of parts for extreme environments, you know, for jet engines and um, turbines. Uh, so they needed high temperature metals which were not affordable um, for making automobiles uh, or making bicycles and and so forth. So once we started to see machines that were able to make larger numbers um, uh, and uh, do them in metals, we now have uh, a whole collection of folks who are producing things. that uh, we couldn't have imagined three years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the capability of desktop metals machine isn't out yet, their production uh, series. Um, but uh, it's getting very good reviews from, uh, from its uh, uh, beta testing clients. Again, you can't make everything. You can't put the car from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. But, but over time, it will expand the number of parts and new methods will be invented that will um, make uh, metal printing uh, become big. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the final technological development that we're seeing is, uh, that's really changing things, is embedded uh, electronics. Mm -hmm. Companies like Optimec, um, uh, where 3D printers can uh, lay conductive traces, which serve as wires, into the body of a, of a product. Um, and uh, uh, now with their high-density uh, machines, the Optimic machines are capable of printing relatively simple circuits on the interior walls of, of items. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, you know, they all, they've already manufactured something like 13 million cell phones um, with embedded wire uh, antennas in them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and so this whole possibility of merging the electronics with the basic function um, changes, uh, you know, the basic structure of the product mm-hmm. uh, changes everything because before there was a company that was a, uh, you know, injection molding company and they made the casing, let's say, to a cell phone, okay? Then um, they would order electronics, which they would stuff into the space from an electronics firm. Mm -hmm. But what happens when the 
system makes the casing and at the same time makes all the electronics either embedded or on the surface of the inside of, um, uh, of uh, a cell phone. Um, we see, you know, uh, <clears throat> those two industries merge. Um, and hence, again, another pan-industrial uh, effort. Mm-hmm. Um, and the and whole new things start to happen. Your cell phone now is essentially hollow. So what can you do? Mm-hmm. Well, you can miniaturize it a lot more by getting rid of the hollow space, or you can stuff that extra space with extra uh, uh, capabilities. IBM is reducing the size of, of the Watson, um, and uh, uh, at the current rate that they're going within the next 10 years, the Watson will fit inside your cell phone. Mm. Um, so just think about that. Everybody can walk around with a supercomputer in their hand. Yeah. Uh, nurses can now diagnose cancer uh, by asking a bunch of questions, putting in the answers, and then... Uh, the uh, uh, artificial intelligence that Watson has already developed um, for cancer diagnosis and, and prescription um, uh, will uh, be available to everybody. So, uh, you know, where there's doctor shortages, uh, uh, we can, there'll be a lot of substitution um, for the doctors by, with, the, with the software in your cell phone. You can do any number of things. You can run an entire plant from your cell phone. Mm-hmm. Um, now, suppose you stick that cell phone on top of a uh, uh, a car, uh, you know, on a dashboard, or on the dashboard of an agricultural uh, equipment, uh, a piece of equipment such as um, you know a harvester. Or, um, uh, you can now essentially plug that in uh, any place you want for different functions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, these GPS devices from uh, Garmin and other places um, where you use your cell phone instead of having to buy the $5,000 um, internal package for GPS mm-hmm. uh, on the car. So, so you can see endless uses uh, for that. Yeah. So I. So anyway, I, I think we're going to see um, some pretty radical uh, changes. And just to go one step further with the cell phone, you know how there's a SIM card in, in every cell phone, mm-hmm. and you can pop it in and out. Mm-hmm. Well, so, suppose you build your your cell phone with you know eight bays on one side and eight bays on the other side, and you can pop in cards for different functionalities. You can put in your doctor's uh, uh, cancer diagnosis uh, program or uh, video games uh, or any number of other functionalities, you know, your system. The bottom line here is um, that um, you can now make, uh, and this is a business model I call mass modularization, um, you, you can now make the body in any shape you want with 3D printing, and the modules can be conventionally made or 3D printed and popped in and out. Um, so, and, and that model could be used not just on cell phones, but on cars and uh, F-35 jets, um, where you pop in and out, um, you know, special functionality. Um, and you can update things. So, you, you know, your car's technology um, or your uh, fighter jet's technology doesn't become obsolete. You simply pop out a SIM card or a modular box and pop in a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it all gets connected to the right wires through um, a standardized system of contacts. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, I just wanted to go back on something you mentioned then when, when you were talking about the um, the different changes that have happened over the last few years and you mentioned HP. There have been a, a lot of big names um, across hardware like HP that have come into to the industry and also materials like BASF and, and Solvay. These big names that have come into the industry and invested a lot. Do you think that has helped us sort of validate the technology and, and really push that adoption to almost get these other companies to start thinking about it? Uh, yes and no. Okay. Um, uh, the the yes is, is that I think that there are bellwether names mm. um, and trusted names who, if they adopt it, uh, will, um, you know, spur a lot of innovation uh, and so forth. Uh, but no in the sense that uh, if you make a giant sophisticated platform, um, it's a hard sell to get a company to convert over everything all at once to your platform. So IBM had an initiative called Software Driven Manufacturing, and they backed off from it. Um, even though the software was fine, uh, there were two big problems for IBM. First, their sales force was used to talking to um, uh, CIOs, um, but not the heads of manufacturing. Um, and so their sales force didn't have the right connections within companies or uh, knowledge of how to sell it. Um, and, and secondly, um, the other thing that happened was companies looked at the software package and said, wow, this is space age, but, um, uh, but we don't dare switch everything over to that mm-hmm. uh, all at once because it'll be a big uh, problem if it doesn't work. Uh, you know, we can we could sink the company and, uh, and sink our quarterly numbers and all of us get fired by Wall Street um, if we end up having, you know, to, to take uh, our old system offline and spend two or three weeks uh, moving into the new system. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, and people have uh, memories of SAP installations, uh, which went horribly wrong. Um, so people are more hesitant. Uh, so the bottom line is, is that a company like Siemens is doing this uh, in a really nice way because they're building the, the digital platform without it being a big digital platform. It's a lot of compatible software, uh, including their NX software for additive manufacturing networks mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and so forth and so on. Um, but they're making it in small increments, so you can adopt it, use it in your current plant, um, and then as you get 10 or 15 of these software packages, they can uh, eventually lay over it the overall uh, platform um, and simply plug all the software that you're currently using into that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have an incremental way of, of selling it. Um, now, Jabil is taking a different approach. Uh, Jabil is basically saying, you just hire us, we'll take care of everything. Mm-hmm. So it's a complete, you know, it's traditional contract manufacturing kind of model, but they're going to have a super system, um, and once this shakes out, um, they may, you know, um, uh, be in a position to start acquiring uh, brand names and, and actually, uh, uh, you know, capturing the uh, the marketplace. So I, I think that's why it's a yes or no. Yes and no. Um, you, you, in order to get adopted, you're going to have to do it in the right way. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I think we'll kind of wrap it up on this one then. Um, you know, the book is the Pan Industrial Revolution. You said at the start you, you've had a lot of um, good feedback from these companies within the industry who are adopting these technologies and are obviously um, right behind this and, and on board with this idea. In, in your view, is there anything that, that stands in the way of this not coming to fruition? Well, as I said earlier, um, the resistance of uh, old-fashioned engineers who 
can only design and operate conventional equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're the biggest roadblock. Right. The second roadblock, I think, is is Wall Street, um, because uh, a, a lot of these systems require big investments, mm-hmm. and Wall Street doesn't like fluctuations in profitability um, uh, that much. And you know, in general, Wall Street is completely um, absorbed by this image of 3D printing hype. Mm. Um, and they, they can't see past that to the new machines. So they're being cautious um, about, you know, um, uh, about companies that are adopting these kinds of systems because they're saying, well, you know, these are big risks. Uh, it's going to cost us a lot of money. You know, it hurts your quarterly numbers. Um, and... Hence, your stock prices are going to go down, and, and that's something we can't live with. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that's the second one. Um, uh, again, a common one, uh, major innovation is discouraged uh, uh, by, that, by that part of uh, Wall Street. Um, uh, uh, and then, I, I, you know, I think the other thing is, um, that's important here is, is that people are focusing on what the, the uh, processes, the AM processes, can't do instead of on what they do do. Mm-hmm. Usually it's only smaller organizations where there's somebody willing to take a big risk. Uh, so um, let me give you an example of some 3D printing that hasn't yet taken off. Um, one is Michelin has now got uh, a series of 3D printed tires, mm-hmm. and um, they are airless. It's a solid tire, so no blowouts, uh, not any problems with you know running over nails, things like that. Um, they're also colored and designed in a way um, that's kind of phantasmagorical. Yeah. So they, um, the big car companies are not adopting them, at least yet. Um, and it's going to be a hard sell because the big car companies, you know, uh, look at it this way. The tires are a small cost compared to the rest of the car. Um, but they're a big problem if they don't work. Um, you know, they ruin your brand name. Um, and because, uh, because they're distrustful of, uh, of the uh, additive manufacturing process, um, they, they aren't uh, adopting at a rate because of product liability issues. So they're relatively conservative for non-technological reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reputational spillover, um, where just a small number of defects turn into a big, big, you know, brouhaha in the, in the press. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and I I think the the final thing um, that I would add to this is uh, uh, government investment um, in the U.S. We've got two parties. One party believes that, you know, investment in science and engineering is a big waste of money because we should be feeding the poor. Mm. Um, And the other party believes, oh, governments don't do a good job at investing. Uh, This is a private sector uh, function. Um, Yet, if you look at Almost all of the industries that we have excelled at, they all had lots of government uh, investment. Mm-hmm. So agriculture is one example. Um, lots of government investment subsidies, help through outreach programs to teach farmers. Um, uh, second industry, pharmaceuticals. You know, a lot of the drug research funded by the National Institute of Health, um, plus 
all of the uh, uh, FDA regulations that prevent others from getting into the marketplace uh, as a kind of barrier to entry. It's been a protected industry by government regulation and investment. Um, uh, defense industry, well, that's obviously, uh, you know, especially in the United States, uh, there's only a small number of OEMs and uh, obviously aided by the government with lots of research. Mm -hmm. Software. Uh, the software industry got its big jump going forward because the uh, uh, IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, and Social Security both needed very large um, computer systems to record and handle all the names and payments and benefits and so forth that were, uh, you know, were for millions of, of people, and the government financed these giant operating systems um, uh, at the beginning, and and they've continued to do that through uh, military systems now that you know control global satellites and communication sat uh, satellites, uh, spy satellites, etc., etc., etc. So, so I think this attitude of both parties in the U.S. is a kind of um, short-sighted 